This is Bragg, son of Balin, and you're listening to Light the Beacons, a Lotro podcast. Welcome to the world of Middle-earth. calls for aid and Brog shall answer Amandine once again it's like the beacons Lotro podcast focusing on the Pelinorian MMORPG Lord of the Rings online as well as related topics in books movies gaming and the lore of J. Ruto. this is episode number 44 and I'm your host Brag of the Lonely Mountain hero of the Pelinor and dwarf of ill repute Broadcasting live from temporary Light the Beacons Middle Earthwide headquarters here in the north gate of the Ramus Echor. What am I doing here, you might add? Well, this this appears to be basically uh, Grand Central Station. There is a lot going on here tonight. Even on Vilia, a server reputed to be dying and migrating soon someplace else. Um, this is uh, definitely a crossroad. So as I look back over my shoulder, I can see the full width of the pier sticking out from Minas Tirith. I can see the layers of the city building like a big cake until the giant tower festooned up at the top sticks up. So it's basically a perfect profile. Uh, the brick road with the, the low stone wall leads away into the, into the distance. The skies overhead are, gra- are gray and and, uh, and with a gray cast and uh, overcast. Um, as I look to my right, I can see a small uh, small copse of trees that obscures a farm. There's a low stone wall that leads up to the base of the Ramus Echor in front of me. The Ramus Echor itself is a very uh, dowdy structure indeed. It looks wide, it looks substantial. It's hard to understand how the orcs could blast it into pieces in certain areas without the aid of one of Saruman's giant uh, black powder balls. But uh, it's uh, crenelled with parapets and flags. It's got towers, there's wood structures for. for uh, using crane-like structures to bring uh, materials up to the top of the wall. Um, as I look towards the, uh, that would be the east, um, I can see a stables at this end, which is something I wasn't expecting initially. There's smoke rising in the distance. I can't see too far on the fields because I appear to be in a little bit of a swale. Uh, but you can see the uh, the red of the sky and the lightning crackling overhead uh, over us, Gilead and Mordor, uh, making the way safe and uh, festive for for Sauron's troops to surround us. So it's definitely a a little bit of a um, you know a little bit of a downer. <laughs> this is war. We're at war. There's no question of it. When you're out here in the Pelennor fields, uh, that's one thing they think they've nailed with this update. Pelennor Fields is filled with war, and the war is imminent. And here at the north gate of Ramus Echor, there are people flitting hither and thither. If you've gotten this far in the story yet, you know that this is one of the hubs to... uh, 
the gateway north to Talith Anor, which is another substantial piece of uh, geography that extends above Gondor, hopefully connecting us soon through the, be the, the beacon marches all the way to Rohan. And uh, this is the site also of uh, one of the daily areas where you can uh, accumulate additional mithril coins and reputation through the speaking of um, with Ingold. Uh, one of the captains of the outer wall and uh, as I approached first approached him I remembered that completed uh, the deed that I had outstanding to talk to all the captains of Minas Tirith he was the last one that I had I had not met up with yet so um, in order to complete that deed you're going to need to rip uh, to visit both the South Tower, uh, the South Gate, and the North Gate, and the Ramus Echor to complete that deed. So um, this is kind of where I'm at in my Upgrade 17 Minas Tirith, Pelennor, Talith Anor uh, exploration. So that's uh, one of the reasons I'm standing here. And uh, did do a good deal of exploring of this area, which I'll talk about a bit later in the podcast. So I thought it was a, a good uh, spot as any for LTB MEWHQ, given that the Foundations of Stone are uh, uh, been condemned by the the uh, Environmental Protection Agency for uh, some of the uh, toxins and so forth that have populated the water there. Uh, it was really just a matter of time. But I'm still hoping to return there eventually, but uh, as it is, I'm still touring around Middle-earth and enjoying my, uh, my waypoints along the way. Hopefully you're enjoying those as well. Uh, but uh, that's enough. Let's move on to our second beacon. So this is kind of a hallmark in the podcast for LTB. After 44 episodes, as I stand upon the fields of Talith Anor for the very first time, I can see the beacon uh, that I believe to be Amandin extending out over the mountains to the northwest. Um, it's over uh, tantalizingly close over a river as you're in the northern part of that geography. Uh, you can see it suspended up on the hillsides there. And, um, you know, the good question would be, when do they intend to connect the landscapes between Rohan and Gondor? And, uh, you know, that's something that I think everybody in the game is going to want to see at some point. You know, whether they do it jumping over a log or they actually build out all the territories, you know, based on where we are on the map, I actually don't think, uh, it doesn't seem like we should be that far away uh, from the lands of Rohan, from the... Um, uh, from the falls of Andros, uh, where the uh, uh, where the pillars of the king stand. So, um, you know, it doesn't seem like they'd have to do quite that much build out. You know, if they didn't want to populate the whole area, then the uh, the other option would be, of course, to uh, you know to give uh, some kind of portal design as they've done in in uh, you know, in Dunland and elsewhere in order to bridge the two areas. But it doesn't seem like it seems like one you know decent sized landmass would be able to connect up, um, would be able to connect up Eastern Rohan, Western Rohan, and the Beacon Marches uh, to connect it down to Talithanor. So I'm hopeful that will come in a future update. Um, one would think, if we're following the story, that uh, as the Rohirrim approach, we'd be able to experience that through the epic quest line or through some kind of uh, at least through some kind of um, what do you call it? Session play. Um, so they, they may end up building that out as it is. But 
indeed, um, it is something that's well worth looking forward to. So, here we are at Elanok. Uh, first, it's time for CRAP, corrections, retractions, and apologies from last week. It has come to my attention that um, we had a little bit of an issue trying to, uh, quote-unquote, stream the podcast last week. Uh, the issue arose in that the person that uh, persons that were supposed to be responsible for the streaming process, in fact, didn't do anything as such. Uh, the individual responsible claims that if our audience was made up of viewers, they should not have needed a video stream to view. Okay, it uh, it pains me, but I, I have to admit he's got a little bit of a point. So this whole viewer theory, it, it needs some more research and analysis. So I'm going to put our top men on it. And since I don't have any top men, I'm going to put my most servile man on it. And uh, hope that he doesn't screw this up as well. So apologies to those of you who were expecting a stream uh, as we explored Minas Tirith last week and took the fatal plunge off of the pier. But uh, once again, I have overestimated the capabilities of my manservant. So be that as it may, I've got him out uh, reassembling the causeway forts using Legos. And we're just going to have to move on. Uh, so last episode, we offended iTunes reviewers, Angmar detractors, in-league members, instant cluster supporters, Twitch streamers, and flaming marshmallow jumpers. And uh, to you all, I issue a, a solemn and very heartfelt, no, I really mean it, sorry, uh, viewer comments. Not too many this week, although we did get another iTunes review, this one coming from Palmdare. And this is, I think, a record, two weeks running with an iTunes review. Palmdare says, keep up the energy. Quickly becoming my favorite for Lotro Podcast. Hope you can keep up the pace. Great combo of in-depth topics and nuts like Grime and Gollum. Never know what to expect. And certainly, uh, as the author of the podcast, uh, I can say that I'm in the same boat. I never know what to expect either. But I hope to uh, keep pace and uh, continue with my idle meanderings. Thank you, Pomdare, for, uh, for the review. Very much appreciate it. Um, community Spotlight. I wanted to point out, uh, for those of you who may have missed it, which hopefully are not many, that uh, on the Beyond Boss Fights podcast this past week, Brax Wilf had uh, collaborator Roger Edwards from Contains Moderate Peril on. Uh, two of them have been uh, close confidants for quite some time now and uh, admirers from afar. And they did a discussion of aging gamers, which certainly hit a chord with me, unfortunately, uh, and is well worth a listen. So I uh, recommend you go over and check that out if you haven't already. From a Forums Insider perspective, not a ton going on this week, although there was the mention um, over the last week of the server transfers restarting in advance of the um, conclusion of the hardware consolidations. So we've had two beta runs uh, for the hardware upgrades, and uh, from what I've heard, this past one was a bit more uh, promising than the first. So they're making progress, apparently. The server load was more. The server didn't actually insta-crash. They brought it down intentionally at one point because of issues with the login server and hopefully gleaned some good data from it. They're talking, you know, 2,300 um, users with the uh, hardware that was uh, allocated for the test. And uh, if it's 
and if it's uh, if it is um, set up correctly they should be able to add additional resources to scale that and know exactly how much resources they need to scale it for each dimension that requires accounting for in order to be able to continue to uh, model the load so that looks like it's coming along pretty well um, Although they did mention that uh, based on the additional data that they would uh, you know, open the server transfers again before those were complete by adding additional resources to the current configuration. So it sounds like these things are proceeding in parallel and uh, in no way dependent in in Turbine's mind, which is positive. I myself tried to get onto the beta test uh, this past Saturday, the first time I've done that in a while, so I had to uh, re-download the entire beta client for bull roar and uh, I missed out by I think about a half hour <laughs> uh, my uh, download completed and my character transfer completed about a half hour after the end of the test so no free turbine points for me but I am poised to rejoin if they do have a third round which uh, all things all um, information seems to indicate they will so maybe I'll join you out there for the next one uh, I do remember when we had the Rohan beta and uh, you know, Saruman and uh, the Balrogs attacking you and Bree, and one of the devs building a staircase into the sky forever until I finally jumped off onto the mountain that uh, flanks Edoras and slid down the length of it, um, kind of uh, like an avalanche style. Uh, that was rather amusing. It was a good time, and uh, you'll get to experience those kinds of things in the game too often. So if you haven't tried it, I do uh, encourage you to do so, especially if there's free turbine points. What the heck? Um, so Vilya looks to be uh, in line for server transfers if they continue apace. Perhaps before Christmas would be nice to get it squared away before then and start the new year on a new note on a new server. So tick-tock, tick-tock, decisions are waiting. Where am I going to go and what kin will I join? Uh, I'm going to take my time on the kin. I think I'm going to move to a server and get my bearings, uh, try to build some new relationships there, connect with some folks, and see what's what, but not rush to decision. Uh, this is the wisdom speaking I have garnered from many years in game. So, in this week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been doing in the game this past few weeks. Of course, we're going to give some update impressions on Update 17 based on uh, my recent gameplay. We're going to talk a little bit about one of the least talked about classic fiction series in fantasy. And if there's any time remaining, we will lob some watermelons off the pier at the top of this Tirith. With any luck, we'll hit some runekeepers or wardens. Time for the third beacon. We are at Nardal, this week in gaming and or other Tolkien news. Uh, so I have been playing a bit of uh, another game this past couple weeks. I've gotten back into Portal 2 and uh, didn't do a lot of it, but um, got through a number of levels in, let's say, an hour or two of gameplay. And I have to, once again, uh, I know I've talked about Portal before, I've talked about my first impressions for Portal 2. The more I get into the gameplay for Portal 2, the more I have to say, this is, I think, going to be a favorite game of mine, I can already tell. Um, uh, I, I really can't say enough about it. It takes a classic premise uh, for puzzle games, which is to slowly give you abilities over time that increase what you can do uh, within the game and the ways that you can do it. 
and then pose uh, more and more complicated puzzles that require you to use some of those new skills in creative ways and uh, to blend them with the old ones in order to overcome the obstacles that are ahead of you. And each successive level uh, adds another layer of complexity or a new style or a new skill um, that you've either just gained or you, or you can use in conjunction with ones you have in the past to build new creativity. And one of the things I like about this game is the creativity. I think a lot of the levels you can probably pass in multiple ways using the tools that are at your disposal. And, uh, you know, I've already, uh, one of my baby hobbits in the house has been through Portal 2, and uh, they were were watching me get to the bottom of one of the puzzles and uh, they're, they're allowed to watch as long as they don't comment I tell them, no spoilers uh, but they you know told me in one or two instances that the way I had approached the puzzle was much different than the way that they had overcome it in some cases it was better in some cases it was worse I like to think in most cases it was better but I think that's a hallmark of a great game that allows that kind of creativity um, so it really does it to perfection as far as the gameplay, the level of challenge, um, and of course the humor that's embedded in the uh, in the audio that that accompanies it. So uh, you know, at this point, you can have Portal and Portal Two for a song off of Steam, and if you don't have it, go get it. Um, no DDO or Secret World, no Marvel Heroes. Uh, I did reach another milestone in Clash of Clans this past week. After a long last, I acquired my Orcher Queen, Archer Queen for a mere 40,000 uh, units of Dark Elixir. Um, for those of you who play Clash of Clans, you know exactly what an Archer Queen is. Either you have one or you've been attacked by one many times. And uh, it does seem like a milestone in the game. It's a very, It helps you in defense and offense, which is nice. Um, at this stage of the game, it's hard to build up that kind of repository of Dark Elixir, so... Uh, I get as close as I can, and I have to fill in the rest using gems that I've acquired through the removal of shrubbery. So um, I had a pretty good pile that I built up um, over you know a period of time to help me bridge the gap between the elixir I had and what I finally needed. The problem is, as you build up dark elixir to this level, you became a more and more attractive target to those attacking yourself, and they're almost always after your dark elixir. <coughs> it's kind of like Lucky Charms. So anyway, it gets harder and harder to uh, reach the milestones you need to get um, to advance your, your town and your troops in the game because as you gain larger and larger amounts, you became more and more appetizing to players that are more advanced. So it's, it's a good balance, although it certainly is slowing over the early stages of development um, in your town, but continue to be amused by it. Uh, no Star Trek Online this past two weeks. Um, the only other thing I'll mention is that there's been a bit of a family revival of Mario Kart lately. Never, got, never gets old, but unfortunately, although I used to be the best in my family at it, I am now number three in the pecking order, um, and the other uh, the others that are behind me don't uh, even play at all. So I'm at the bottom of the pile as far as those that are involved, and uh, obviously I have not invested the time to uh, to keep up with the uh, the burgeoning skills of some of the other dwarves in the household, unfortunately. But it's still a good time, and every now and then a uh, blind squirrel finds a nut and finishes ahead. Uh, just not too consistently anymore. So enough about other games. What's been going on in Lotro? Well, Bragg has been questing around Minas Tirith and making good progress, but I'll save some of that detail for my next beacon.
My Bjorning, actually, even with new content out, I found myself playing um, two other tunes in particular significantly over these last couple weeks. Uh, my Bjorning has reached, uh, reached level 86, so um, three or four levels over the last two weeks. He's been uh, questing in the Entwade in Western Rohan, trying to chip away at some of the content there. Um, I was a bit underleveled, actually, for proceeding into Western Rohan around the Entwade, and that didn't really affect me for any of the quests, opening quests around the area, but to capstone off the area, I needed to take down an elite that uh, roams a little bit to the west of the town there, and... Um, my mounted combat level was just not enough to take him down. Um, so I definitely need some leveling of my mounted skills. And uh, even with all the buffs that I could muster and all the little tricks and strategies I could surmise, he killed me several times before I finally had to uh, call for help for someone in the area. And uh, that individual was very nice to come over and obviously two, two tunes at that point might make short, short work of the guy. Uh, so that tells me, you know, I'm probably better off going back into Eastern Rohan and doing a bit more questing. That was back when I was level 83. Level 86, I'm guessing, wouldn't have been a problem now. But uh, in uh, Eastern Rohan, I'm still trying to make uh, progress towards Hitbold. And to that end, I have been... Um, Draining the quest line of the Sootcrofts. It's been a long time since I did all the quests in the Sootcrofts with a tune. And boy, is that a long quest line. <laughs> so it uh, it's up there. It, uh, if you may remember, it starts out, I think, in Garsfield. And you go from Garsfield to Snowborn to Garsfield to Snowborn to Wallstow to Snowborn to Wallstow to Snowborn. And now I'm finally at Hitbold. So I finished off uh, all the quest line in, in Snowborn around that area and in Garsfield. Field, and it is a long one. Uh, I'm now up to Hitbold. Hitbold 2.0, you might call it, because uh, I've only ever finished it on my main brag. Never done it with any of my other tunes. Um, Hitbold 2.0 features the point that everything that you build in the town now costs one coin instead of five or ten, as it used to. And tokens are easy to come by. Um, after two or three sets of dailies in in Eastern Rohan, I was able to unlock everything that was open to me instantly. Uh, unfortunately, as you may recall, you need kindred in every faction area in order to finish the town of, of Hitbold. So even though they've made the tokens easier to come by, the content is still gated by the fact that if you want to see it, you have got to get to kindred with the Wold, the Entwash Vale, the Norcrofts, and the Sootcrofts in order to be able to finish the town. Uh, so getting kindred all over Rohan um, does not earn me much now that I'm level 85 plus. Just some turbine points basically. It's going to be a lot of work for relatively little reward, but uh, oh well, that's what I signed up for, I guess. I am using rep accelerators to try to get there. Uh, the Sootcrofts one is finished. I think all the other rep areas in Eastern Rohan for me are at uh, barely past acquaintance and into friends, somewhere in that range. So I'm going to need to get to ally, friend, ally, and kindred with each of them. And uh, right now I'm doing it through the dailies. It is kind of fun to go back and revisit some of the Hitbold dailies. As you can remember, I think there's 20 to 30-odd different types that you can go through. 
Um, I know at the time they were a grind for folks. They had to do them every day for 46 days, I believe it was, straight in order to get to the end of that quest line. But now revisiting some of them and only having to do them once or twice is uh, uh, can be fun. So um, that's uh, part of what I wanted to do was take a look at some of that content again for a second time. And I'll let you know how I proceed with it. In the meantime... Um, I've been spending a lot of time on my Hunter. Hunter has been knocking around Western Rohan trying to get the class trait points that are there. And really taking a different approach to Western Rohan than I've ever done before. As you, as you may remember, as you quest around Rohan and reach certain milestones, uh, quests pop up to tell you, you know, go talk to Gandalf at Edoras, or go talk to Yoan now, or go to Middlemead, or go to Stokes, or go do this, go do that. And it's really kind of confusing. I, you know, I think there was an intention to lead you around in a particular path, you know, based on where you were. But there were also options to bypass certain areas and, you know, skip ahead here and there and everywhere. So what I've been doing instead of draining an area completely is uh, when they tell me to go somewhere else, I've been just following that and just doing uh, doing a different area for a while. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's keeping it a little fresher than it has been in the past where I've, you know, completed all of the Eastfold and completed all of Kingstead and completed all of Stokes and completed all of, uh, you know, the area around uh, Helm's Deep. So, um, so I've been skipping hither and thither. And uh, I've got most, I'd say I've got all the quest lines about half done and Kingstead fully complete with Yoan now poised in Dunharrow uh, after she's marshaled her people there. Uh, I was going to level my Bjorning to cap first. Uh, that was the intent when I laid my hunter by for a long time and leveled my Bjorning up to level 86. But my hunter is now tantalizingly close. I think she's level 95. So I might just push her through uh, just to have another tune at 100. And um, we'll see. Uh, maybe I'll juggle back and forth between the two. You never know. Uh, which alt to play that day really depends on when you log in and you look at your characters, uh, which one you know gives you the motivation to, to do something and, and earn something in advance. So my hunter does need a few virtues as well. Uh, I think most of them are between 16 and 17, so not terrible. Uh, I'm hoping now with the new um, explorer and quest deeds available in the new areas, that I'll be able to polish off her off to 19s with relatively few Slayer Deeds. I did notice after I'd gotten uh, all my Burglar Virtues to level one, uh, level 19 that there were a number of Deeds in Eastern Gondor and uh, now in Minas Tirith that I could have finished just through exploration or just through going doing the regular quests I'd be doing anyway uh, without having to resort to Slayer Deeds. So I'm hopeful that'll be the case with my Hunter as well. Um... I even dusted off my champ for a quest or two in the North Downs. I think I did a class-specific quest in the North Downs with my champ, uh, which gave me some kind of offhand weapon upgrade. And uh, it would be kind of fun to push the champ to level 45, start doing my pages in Angmar, and get them to Moria so I could uh, do some Moria content again. If I did get a tune in Moria, I have a feeling I'd let them camp there for a while so I could do instances on level with folks. That's the plan, anyway. But enough what I've been doing in-game with my tunes. Let's move on to another beacon. 
We are at Erelas. Let's talk a little bit about continuing impressions of Minas Tirith in Update 17. So the first thing I wanted to do was talk a little bit about the music and the sound in Update 17. Yes, there is some reuse here. Yes, there are some sound effects that have gone before. Yes, if you talk to time people, to uh, some of the townspeople around Minas Tirith, you will hear people say, um, the situation is dire indeed, as you've heard many times in the past. But uh, I think there is a, a pleasant injection of new music and certainly sound effects in this area that I'm enjoying quite a bit. Uh, first of all, First of all, let me crank up some of it so we can listen to it while I talk about it. So I don't know how well you'll be able to hear this, but I'll, I'll put it loud. Um, so it's atmospheric and it's creepy, especially out in the Pelennor fields. There are crows that you can hear calling and, and flapping about. There are cries of uh, certainly of Nazgul overhead. From afar, and not just Nazgul, beasts and creatures of all kinds that kind of randomly cry out and disturb you as you're moving about. It's it's atmospheric and creepy, but but more than Angmore, it's more in a warlike way. Um, I love uh, they have some certain bits and pieces where you get a high string violin sound that kind of builds to a crescendo of of uh, discord. And uh, then some wailing horns will uh, be intermixed. Uh, you know, then a, a steady bass line um, that uh, builds tension uh, with creature wails and screams kind of in intermixed and, and sparse throughout. So uh, I think they've done a really good job of, of giving you that warlike feel for the area and uh, to build the tension. You know, the, 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 the clouds are, uh, are gathering, right? And soon they're going to burst. And that's the feeling I get with a lot of the music. Uh, now, in Minas Tirith, it's a bit more regal. It's a bit more uh, stately. Uh, it's a bit more, you know, kind of legendary lore-focused. Uh, and I think that fits as well, you know, but a bit doleful as well, knowing the peril that the areas are, are coming into. So, good marks on the additional music and sound effects that have been added to the game for this update. Um... The other thing that I've heard some folks talk about initial impressions of Minas Tirith uh, were folks that thought that there were a lot of reused assets and that there really wasn't much that was new um, that hasn't been done in you know Western Gondor, uh, Central Gondor, and Eastern Gondor, with with areas like Dol Amroth and um, and uh, Pilar Gear and so forth. Um, so the one comment I'll make is that. As we move through Gondor, the geographic areas themselves have been similar, as, as they should be. So th that's a big change in the game. Uh, previously, Shadows of Angmar, Mines of Moria, um, you know, the expansions, each new area that we approached had a completely different look and feel to... Uh, to the geography, whether it was, you know, winter-torn wastelands, deserts, you know, uh, shattered hills, giant crevice caverns, um, you know, even within Moria itself, each of the different zones had a completely different color scheme and feel to them, and uh, you know, and um, aesthetic uh, feel. 
So, um, you know, as we move through Gondor, really each area has, they've done a good job distinguishing them as much as they can with the kind of landmarks and towns, but there's been to some degree, um, you know, a bit of repetitiveness of what the landscape's like and what the different cities are like, uh, because, you know, they have a united architecture and feel and so forth as they should in the kingdom. So, you know, I think they couldn't really get away from that too much without violating the lore, uh, but it is a, a bit of a drawback for for players that are used to something really new and fresh with each, you know, major content release. Um, so, but I have to say that I don't completely agree with people that said Minas Tirith is just a rehash of what's gone before. And uh, as I've explored the uh, the different tiers and rings, you know, I found myself thinking, you know, it would have been really easy for them to make these uniform with straight avenues just lined with shop after shop that looked exactly the same. But I can see that Kira went into making it more three-dimensional, having the path wind back and forth around uh, different marketplaces, um, you know, staircases, fountains, gardens, um, you know, ale houses that stick out into the streets. Uh, and it really helps give it a more three-dimensional look and feel to something that could have been just, you know, a wend its way back and forth, almost feel like a Donkey Kong going back and forth up the, uh, you know, up the ramps uh, in order to get to the gorilla at the top. It, it really gave it a lot more character. Uh, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit more, uh, less... Uh, now, it's not as much of an autopilot to navigate, but I like that. It, it engages me more. So I think they did a good job in that respect. And the second point I'll make is that the interior spaces in Minas Tirith, I have been extremely impressed with. I think they have had a lot of variety. Um, I think the level of detail in the interior spaces it was above and beyond what I expected, and that the number of them and the scale of them is also more than I expected as I've explored the town. Um, a, couple, a couple that I'll throw out there. First of all, uh, the cisterns. Um, I originally thought they might add some character by having the tombs of the kings kind of extend into the mountains with, you know, underground caves that would be attacked by orcs that were filtering through the mountains and stuff. Instead, they made it the cisterns, and I think it works uh, almost as well. It's a nice change of pace from the Minas Tirith city landscape to go into the cisterns and explore the tunnels and see the waterways and obviously have the uh, the threat of some combat there. Uh, the Hall of Smiths is uh, very cool and well done. The Houses of Healing was nice to see from a lore perspective. If you've been following the quest chains, you've spent a lot of time in the Merry Swan. Um, you know, it could have been a very simple and... Uh you know, stayed and laid back tavern. But if you look around it, there is quite a bit of detail and uh, craft that has gone into the presentation of Mary Swan and some of the other houses around Ms. Tirith. <coughs> one of my favorites is the cask and wheel, which I think is one, one of the lower levels that has a giant water wheel built into the wall next to it uh, for no reason other than to be different and have decoration. Uh, thought that was a very cool idea. Um, the house of stores, uh, both on the lower levels, the, um, the stables, both the great stables and the lower stables, um, the hall of kings, obviously, if you've been on Denethor's floor, you see that it gleams like no other floor surface has in the game. <coughs> hmm. Uh, probably my favorite, um, and perhaps the most detailed one that I've seen, the Hall of Lore. And uh, pieces of it that you get to see in the epic quest line following Gandalf as well, in a very pleasurable little uh, side um, uh, a side quest that uh, you know provides some more backstory for the epic quest line. Uh, Hall of Lore... <clears throat> 
goes on and on and on, and not the same room after the same room after the same room. You know, I really picture these people laying down ideas for how they want to structure these rooms out and the level of detail. You know, the ceilings and the way the arcs fit together from an architectural standpoint, from a you know support structure standpoint, <coughs> the color schemes, the decorations there. I imagine they just start creating general assets to be placed in most of the environments uh, well before they start laying out the actual rooms that those elements go in. You know, they might have 20 or 30 stacks of books or, or uh, you know, barrels or uh, piles of supplies or whatever, and then that all becomes a palette that the, uh, the the world builders can use to draw from to place into the different rooms and areas they create. And uh, I, I'm really impressed with the number of assets they built um, in order to build out the interior spaces and exterior spaces within Minas Tirith so far. I think it is a fitting tribute to the largest city that we've seen in Middle Earth to date and may ever see uh, from that perspective. Um, let's go to quest lines in, uh, in the update. There's a quest line where you follow the children of Minas Tirith, uh, Tirith Burgle and friends. <coughs> And Burgle is uh, driven directly from the books, obviously, uh, who befriends Pippin. So a uh, nice little tie into the lore where you meet him and his friends and they send you around the city. And uh, the other quest line is with Forlong uh, in the Merry Swan. So three of the three of the magistrates from the different uh, cities that we've passed through on our way to Eastern Gondor and Minas Tirith are holed up before the big battle, sharing stories and uh, you know reminiscing about the old days. And yes, this is a long quest line, and yes, uh, as I go through it with multiple aughts, I'm probably going to be very tired of ferrying back and forth from the Merry Swan over time. Um, but uh, my initial run-through, I did enjoy this quest line quite a bit. Yeah, in its essence, these Minas Tirith quests are about making you explore Minas Tirith and hopefully um, you know, appreciate the landscape that's been created for your character uh, through the exploration that you have to do in order to finish the quests. That's the whole point, right? They want to send us to different tiers, different, different buildings, different people, so that we get a real feel for the culture and for, um, you know, for the physical space that's been created and appreciated. Because there's a lot of people that play MMOs that would never you know, pick their nose off, uh, pick their eyes off the keyboard and look around a little bit if they weren't forced to by the quests that were being given to them. And I think these quests do a good job of that. <clears throat> um, that's you know about as much as you can say for them so far. Um, you know, I think it's better than random people you don't know on the streets asking you to do stuff that's all over the place. At least they have a theme, they have an overarching uh, storyline. Uh, they introduce you to characters that are important and hopefully will be important in the battle to come. Uh, you know, which helps invest you in the characters and investing you in the characters of what a good story is all about. Um, perhaps one of the things I've been most impressed with is uh, just the past couple days I've gotten out of Minas Tirith and started exploring the Pelennor Fields. And um, if you go out to the Causeway Forts to try to do some questing there, you are going to find um, just a pretty amazing level of detail. Um, you can get lost in there pretty quick, you know, if you don't see which direction you're heading. Uh, the camps of the enemy sprawl in all directions. Yes, they're very thickly populated in some areas, lightly in others. Uh, but there's a lot of detail there, and it really kind of, uh, you know, builds that evil menacing uh, feel. You know, is all of Minas Tirith and Gondor going to look like this once the battle is over, if they have their way? Um, 
Plus, the causeway forts are kind of a guardian's dream. <laughs> At this point, <clears throat> running around a camp to scoop up enemies and uh, you know, burning them down 10 to 15 at a time is uh, <clears throat> not something that every class can enjoy the way a Guardian can. So having to go through here with some of my other tunes may not be quite as fun, maybe a little more challenging, but right now it's a Guardian's dream. I've also explored uh, mountain passes uh, to the, to the uh, north and south of Minas Tirith that appear to go, you know, up... Um, into the mountains, and I picture future storylines tying into these passes uh, in future events. I don't know if maybe they built the mountain now for future story, if they just didn't get a chance to add the quests there. But um, you know, I, I believe I remember from the story that uh, you know the Minas Tirith in its direst hour was looking at sending some of its uh, uh, town folk up into the mountains to try to escape. In, uh, you know, as the as the gates were breached, and that there were. Um, enemy forces that were trying to penetrate the walls from up on, on those levels. Um, you know, not, not heavy concentrations, but some that were, you know, trying to infiltrate sabotage. So um, it looks like they built those details out, which was fun to see. Uh, been exploring Teleth Anor, north of the uh, north gate of the Ramasekor a little bit. And, um, you know, it's not filled with detail, but what is there is nice. It's a nice sweeping area with a, a cool central town in Krithost and Care Andros, which uh, was taken over by the enemy. Spoiler alert. I have to admit, when I was in Care Andros looking around, um, noting that you can't go inside the fortress there, it did look to me like it... Uh, it, it kind of felt like it could be the location of a future instance if they decided to add one to the game. I think that's uh, you know a candidate based on what I saw about it from right now. Um, next run through uh, Minas Tirith, my recommendation for my alts at least is gonna I'm gonna do a better job of mixing up mixing up the the Minas Tirith interior quests and running quests in the Pelennor exterior because they are quite different. <laughs> Pelennor is very combat heavy, both mounted and uh, and on foot. And Minas Tirith obviously isn't. There's uh, there are some some encounters obviously in the cisterns and a few other areas where you'll get some combat, but not a ton. So I think it's uh, it uh, it's going to be more refreshing to mix that up and go out for a little while, go in for a little while, and uh, you know have a little different experience. Um, the dailies that are on the north north and south gates that I found at least so far in the in the Ramasekor are packed in a tight area with a lot of mobs. So they're a bit of a slog, but it's a quick way to get many done simultaneously. So I would say. Uh, my first impression is positive that those will be, you know, pretty easy to blitz through and get decent rewards in a minimal amount of time, uh, given how many quests are kind of packed into one, you know, specific area. And um, given that, it should not be too bad to get um, the class trait point earned that I found in update 17, and that comes with a meta deed of finishing the quest of Minas Tirith, the quest of the Pelennor, the quest of Talith Anor, and finding all the roaming enemies that are out there in uh, in Minas Tirith and the Pelennor fields, which I can't imagine are too many. Uh, so far, I've seen at least one on the Pelennor, and really, that's the only one I've to so far, so um, there can't, can't be too many to have to be taken down. Uh, you know, I've already finished the quests of Minas Tirith and the Pelennor, and Talith Anor doesn't look like it's too far away. 
Uh, so that'll leave just a couple runs with roaming enemies to get the class trait point for um, for this expansion. And that's the only one I've found so far. Not to say there aren't others, but they haven't come up in my D-log yet. So what's waiting next in Ms. Tirith? Um, I still have a bit more questing to do in the Northern Anorian fields. Um, obviously, there'll be some level of grind for whatever new rewards are available. I've seen basically uh, essence-slotted gear available from the Ms. Tirith reward vendors. Uh, the pieces that I've been getting as part of the epic quest line are purple with two essence slots and they look like they'd be only marginal upgrades over the teal armor I have from previous content so I'm not sure it's worth uh, using those yet. Um, you know, I might wait and see what the end rewards are for the area that I can get through the Ministerial Reward Vendors and um, then make a decision on whether I want to utilize those or not. And besides that, I've got two big battles waiting for me. I have been waiting to get to those in the succession of the storyline uh, rather than jumping ahead to them. And of course, I've got crafting to, uh, to explore, so I've tried to be mindful of stopping at all the nodes that I found in the new area. Um trying to collect materials as I know I'm going to need them. And besides that, it'll be next tune-up. Um, questing in Minas Tirith should not be too different as you move from tune to tune, except for those maybe that have a bit more run speed capability, which will help it go a little faster. Uh, but, uh, you know, aside from that, shouldn't be too different. What, what will come into play will be some of the tighter-packed areas for the dailies and the combat in the Pelennor fields. So those are my continuing impressions of Update 17. Would love to hear how you're enjoying the content. If you agree or disagree with some of my comments regarding the uh, quality of the landscape and uh, physical spaces. But since I can't hear you right now, viewers, let's move on to our fifth beacon. We are at Minrimon, and now the original word from our sponsor segment. This episode of the LTB is brought to you by Henduel's Fantasy Hobnomigans. Henduel Hobnomigans has definitely changed my every fourth Sunday between festivals, buried treasure events, mark acquisition weekends, Bilbo's birthday, be a pirate weekends, welcome back weekends, and lotro anniversaries. It's made it a lot more interesting. Henduel Fantasy Hobnomigans leagues are paying out 75 million copper pieces per week with immediate cash payouts and no commitments. I deposited a total of 25 mithril coins on Henduels and won over 2 million copper pieces. Just choose a league, pick your team, red or blue, and get your cash winnings after the weekend action. It's like the best adrenaline rush ever. It's better than making it to the top of Minas Tirith on my chicken. Try Henduels today. We'll match your first deposit up to 200 mithril coins, but slowly over the course of several years if you read the fine print. So just go to henduels.com and enter promo code XY30. 32-G67LY-249er-YYZ-52GB asterisk pound 62 skidoo. What are you, chicken? Uh, did I hear a niner in there? Okay, gambling in Lotro. Is it really so far-fetched? I mean, hey, we got slot machines already with the Hobbit presence. They could ret retrofit those to make it even closer to really gambling. Have it pop up one by one. Mithril, Mithril, and a potato. Oh, not again. Uh, yeah. Let's move on to our sixth beacon. Gallon hat. In Gallon hat this week... I want to talk a little bit about a fantasy fiction series, which uh, 
which I have followed for quite some time, and the reasons will become obvious as I talk a bit more about it. The fantasy series, which some of you uh, may have uh, be familiar with, is one that uh, obviously um, begged, borrowed, and stole a lot of ideas from Tolkien's mythology. So that is not a foreign concept. Uh, almost all the fantasy series that were coming out around the 70s um, as uh, Tolkien's Hobbit and Lord of the Rings books you know, rose in popularity and fame, uh, you know, borrowed from the master. You know, that, that is not uncommon in that period of time. And this is uh, another uh, series of books that um, definitely has a lot of themes in common with Tolkien's lore. And the books I'm talking about are the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever, uh, as written by S Stephen R. Donaldson. So this was a series that was published first in 1977. And... Uh, Stephen R. Donaldson then returned to the series. Grandma, <clears throat> <clears throat> edit that out. Um, with the second Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, published in 1983, a mere six years later, and then uh, had a staggering 23 odd uh, year gap before he published the last Chronicles of Thomas Covenant in 2005, completing it in 2013. Um, so that's quite uh, quite a period of time before returning. And, and uh, he wrote several other series in between. Um, there was a series, a two-book series called A Man Rides Through, uh, which I found entertaining. And there was a science fiction series he wrote called A Gap into Conflict, which I thought was not bad. Um, not bad. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say don't read it. It was not my favorite science fiction series, but it had its qualities. And uh, if you like Stephen R. Donaldson's writing, I think you'll you'll enjoy reading those books as well. Um, so the reason I'm talking about this now is that I just finished the final book in the last Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, seeing as how it was only published in 2013, and it took it a while for it to make it into softcover trade version, uh, which is the same format that I have uh, the rest of the books in. Um, so there are a lot of Tolkien influences in this series. Uh, as I mentioned, everyone in this genre was influenced by Tolkien and continues to be so to some degree. Um, here's some of the similarities. There's a, there's a fish out of water hero. Um, he's got a magic ring. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He's got a magic ring. He bands together with the races of the good peoples, forces of good, to try to defeat an all-powerful evil lord who lives in a smoky, uh, evil, lava-filled fortress at the southeastern edge of the map. Uh, you know, that is, uh, you know, in summary, what, what the book is about. And so it's very similar, obviously, from that perspective. Um, having a hobbit's point of view in Tolkien's writing allowed you to explore new areas of the world, world that, the, that the hobbits had never explored before. And... Um, allows for lots of opportunity for exposition. So, uh, Stephen R. Donaldson uses a similar technique in that his visitor to the land, Thomas Covenant, uh, basically is someone who lives in the everyday ordinary world until he's knocked unconscious and wakes up in this fantasy land. And so, um, the fish out of water scenario applies to the point that 
he really can't come to the grips, at least initially, with whether the land is real or this is all a dream or some kind of, you know, psychotic, uh, you know, mental episode that he's suffering based on his injury. Is he in a coma or whatever's happening? Um, so uh, that is, uh, you know, that allows him to experience the land as an outsider that is not familiar with uh, some of its fantastic features, and uh, you know provides a central plot point to the story. Um, Stephen R. Donaldson also weaves in the power of nature strongly into his narrative, as Tolkien did. Uh, there is a uh, almost an analogous creature to an ant in Stephen R. Donaldson's series called a forest doll, who's you know the protector of the forests and is a very powerful being, and comes into play um, in, over the course of the story. And uh, you know perhaps even more so, he emphasizes the natural powers of the earth in Thomas in the land from Thomas Covenant. Um, you know, I think he shares a vibrancy and depth of detail detail in the land and its history and its lore, uh, similar to what Tolkien invoked. Not quite to Tolkien's level of obviously, of course, to build a whole mythology in the past, but there is definitely a history there that impacts everything, and um, and of course the the uh, you know the classic fantasy um, trope of the quest that needs to be undertaken in order to uh, to vanquish evil. So here's some of the differences that are in the series. Um, the main protagonist, Thomas Covenant, is an anti-hero. Uh, he comes to the land. He's a, in real life. He's a leper, um, so he's got a lot of uh, social problems, uh, you know, that come from being outcast and divided from his family and and uh, living in fear and and living, uh, you know, of uh, of always falling to the the. Um, the symptoms of leprosy. Uh, when he comes to the land, his leprosy is cured. Uh, so he uh, he's overcome with emotion and feeling that he hasn't had in years, and he does some horrible things uh, when he first comes to the land. Uh, partly because of that kind of influx and overpowering emotion. Partly because he doesn't believe that the land is real initially. So he acts like kind of a jerk and uh, sets himself up as not a sympathetic figure at all. And um, um, over time, additional principles are added to the story for character development purposes. But, you know, I have to say this is one of the, uh, you know, one of the central precepts is that the anti-hero, you know, that is resisting being the hero, as opposed to someone like Frodo or Bilbo that embraced that opportunity. They were reluctant, but they embraced it when it was thrust upon them, whereas Covenant, at least initially, does not. Um... The depth of the lore and the language can't compare to Tolkien's, but it is rich in its own right. And I would say Stephen R. Donaldson's writing is not as lyrical or poetic, but um, but it is strong and has perhaps some of the most ambitious vocabulary of any writer I have ever read, especially in his later writings. Um, at one point, I consider myself to have a strong vocabulary in general, but at one point I started to keep a log of the words that I came across in the story uh, that uh, I really, you know, either weren't fully sure of or had no clue of whatsoever and it became quite a long list and it's very surprising to me when I read something nowadays where I find that many words that I'm not familiar with so I, I love that I love being challenged like that love expanding my own vocabulary um, you know there's a fine line between utilizing an appropriate low and, and feeling like he's showing off with it uh, which in some cases uh, he, he crossed 
Um, so why you might not like this story. Uh, so some of my sisters read this story before it came to me. And uh, I understand their viewpoint. They really couldn't get past the anti-hero jerkishness of the guy. It's kind of like, look, you've got power. Just be a hero already. Stop being such an, you know, <laughs> stop being such a schmuck to everybody that you meet. And just accept this and, and go with it. You know, there's a tension that's created by the character, you know, not taking that path. Um, and some, you know, one of the things that makes it strong and not a Tokian clone is that it takes that route. So I give him marks for doing something different that thrusts a completely different feel on the story and gets away from, uh, you know, some of the other writings of the day. Uh, but that in and of itself will turn some people off in my experience. Um, also the, the, the mental or psychological ramifications of the character's journey can be bleak and a bit psychologically, it can be a bit oppressive at times. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the ultimate suffering and the ultimate anguish and, and the sacrifices of choices and things of that nature that uh, really kind of raise the stakes in that area. And uh, sometimes you just want, you know, you just want some good story with some good action and some interesting detail. Um, why you might love it. The, the richness of the land that he's created is really my favorite part of the story. It's filled with magical places that you remember and that when you return to, you're excited to see again. Um, the races that he places in the land, uh, giants, Harushai, Rainihain, Raymond, Lords, Forest Alls, Wainhem, if you read the book, you know who I'm talking about, are really fantastic. These are the strength, you know, each one has a different quality that makes them unique and wonderful. And the Harushai are one of my favorite races of any characters I've ever read in any story. Um, the overall quality of the writing is extremely strong. Um, it is derivative, but it has enough uniqueness to make it, I believe, one of the classic series of the genre and a must-read for any serious fantasy fan. Uh, the hardest part of a series of this magnitude has got to be finishing in a way that satisfies your core audience after so many years, and it's not easy to do. It's a different medium, but just ask uh, Peter Jackson and his seven Return of the King endings how he felt about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's uh, that's definitely something that's that's difficult to do. And revisiting a series 27 years after you started it is an even bolder move. I mean... You know, reminds me of Stephen King finishing the Dark Tower series after a couple decades, and the style of his writing changed so much after that, and yet it was rewarding to kind of see how it evolved through and uh, and how it ended up. It's a sprawling series, but you know, a lot of people will say it's one of his masterworks. Uh, not me personally, I prefer a few of his other writings, including The Stand and It, but uh, but obviously it's. It's uh, you know it's up there um, as far as the magnitude of the accomplishment. So Stephen R. Donaldson did a good job. Um, I'm happy I stuck with it. I'm happy I got to experience the end. It was satisfying for me, not perfect, but satisfying after so many years. And if you have not come to the series before, you can uh, you can approach it with the knowledge that uh, you don't have to wait for the books to come out. They're all there, and you can binge read right on through. So if you haven't heard of it, and if you're a fantasy fan. Uh, give it a try and let me know what you think. Oh my goodness, we are at Halifurian. Uh, we have lingered long enough and it is time to be moseying along. It's Blessed Relief. That brings us Blessed Relief. How about some beer? I'm sorry, ale. 
that brings us to the end of the 44th episode of Light the Beacons. I would love to hear your plugs, feedback, rants, diatribes, and most of all, your constructive critique. Not everybody's a fantasy lecture, lecturer fan, literature fan, whatever you want to call it. Tried something new with a book review this time around. Um, I assume there's lots of fantasy fans out there if you're in this genre, but if you don't want to hear more of these in the future, be sure to let me know. Um, you can contact me at bragsonofbalan at gmail.com. That's brag with two A's. The second A stands for my A-plus credit rating. Uh, Facebook or Twitter at bragsonofbalan or my website at lightthebeacons.com where you can post comments directly on the podcast. I kindly request you take the time to create an iTunes review. Perchance you were so inclined, much as Palm Dare did this past week, I very much appreciate it. If your comments incite me to forgo my legendary dwarven apathy, I will try to include them in the next podcast, or at least respond in some way. So, I hope you laughed either at or with me. I hope you might have learned at least a little something you didn't know before, or perhaps looked at the game with a slightly different perspective. Most of all, I hope you enjoy your week in Middle-earth. This is Bragg, son of Balin, signing off. Baruch Kazad! And remember, the next time you propose to build a giant wall around your city to keep the uh, immigrants out, you might want to keep in mind what happens at Minas Tirith, and instead, light the beacons. All right, Grana, let's get our team together for Hen Duels this week. Uh, for 200 Mithril Coins, I like the uh, the red-footed uh, cock from the blue team. Uh, going into the last match of the weekend, scored a uh, goal. Little Hobbit guy scored a goal for me, put me over the top in my fantasy lineup. It's rewarding. Ah, the copper pieces are pouring in. The price of mere mithril coins, too. What a bargain. Hope to see you on henduels.com. Jesus, a lot of animals out here. It's kind of scary. I'll just let you listen for a little while.